Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand it, help us to know what it is that you're calling us to do as a result of it. Uh, Lord, the things in our lives that we need to be putting off, and setting down and walking away from, would you make that clear to us this morning? The ways that you want to be put, us to be putting on the new life and living in uh, obedience to you, growing in righteousness and holiness, would you make those things clear to us this morning too? Lord, I pray for children downstairs, that uh, they would be drawn to you, that they would trust you at a young age and, and walk in obedience with you, Know the, that they would know the joy of living their whole lives for you. Lord, we pray for John and Carmen, we pray for John's recovery, and that uh, you'd restore them to our fellowship soon. pray that you help them to be patient, help them to uh, be wise to know what to do in order to help him recover as, as quickly and as well as possible. Lord, we pray for uh, the offering that people have given to the box. Lord, would you, uh, would you increase its effectiveness? Would you use it to grow your kingdom here in Versailles and around the world? Would you be pleased with it as a way of us giving back to you a portion of what you have entrusted to us? So we come and we put ourselves under your word this morning. We say that your word is authoritative over us, and we want to be conformed into your likeness through your word. So please work in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been memorizing Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 together, and we're on verse 7 this week. We're adding verse 7. And so, Caleb, would you just go to the third of the slides there so we can see what verse 7 says? And uh, we'll just read verse 7 together, and then we'll go through the whole thing. So verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let's try that together nice and loud. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. All right, so let's go back to the first side, Caleb, and uh, if you want to Look at the screen to help you get through. That's great. If you're going to do it from memory, be bold. Just go ahead and shout it out. So this is, uh, it's labeled as 1 through 7. We're going to eventually get to 1 through 10. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Whew, feels like a lot, doesn't it? All right, the summer's not over. You can still pull this off if you commit to it. Last week, we talked about how Christians are to be growing in Christ toward maturity. The goal is 
maturity. And maturity for the Christian is Christ-likeness, becoming more like Jesus. The longer you live as a Christian, the more your thoughts, your actions, your desires, your motivations should look like Jesus and align with Jesus. That does not happen automatically. It is a process. God helps us in that process by giving us gifts. And last week we looked at how some of the gifts that he gives us are actually people. We looked at how the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists of the early church were used by God to accomplish many things, but to write the New Testament for us. They were word workers creating for us, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament. We also then looked at how the shepherd and teachers, or the pastors and elders of today, help to mature and grow the church through the ministry of the Word. They are also Word workers. In fact, the Word of God is the primary tool for a pastor or an elder, a shepherd or teacher, to help grow Christians toward maturity. Today, we're going to continue in Ephesians 4, and we're going to get some very pointed and practical stuff from the Word of God. I intended for us to get through, I think, verse 33. I had to decide yesterday that I need to shorten it, extend it out, and so this becomes two sermons instead of one. Uh, I was talking to Teresa before the service, and uh, her daughter is leading a Bible study as part of a ministry. I'm not going to go into all the details there, but she's been working on a, a study in the women of the Bible. And how many weeks in is she? Seven weeks in, and Teresa asked her, okay, well, which woman are you on now? She said, we're still on Eve. So I'm going a lot faster than Teresa's daughter. That was encouraging to me. So thank you, Teresa. In Ephesians 4, we're going to look at how we are in Christ. We are new creations. And as new creations in Christ, what does that mean for us as we live? So this idea of a new creation actually comes very clearly to us from 2 Corinthians 5, 17, which says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now that is a great verse for you to memorize. Stick it in your head, in your heart, so that you can pull it out whenever you need it. Because our world is constantly trying to tell you that you are really not a new creation in Christ. And those thoughts and those memories and just the junk in your heart and your mind, they keep coming back and they keep telling you you're a failure, you think you're in Christ, but you're not. Look at how rotten your life is. And this verse is a great thing to have memorized to help you in those times. The next couple Sundays, this week, next week, the week after that, we're going to be focusing on this idea of progressive sanctification. Sanctification is the making of us as holier people. So you're to be growing in Christ, becoming more like Him. That's sanctification. It's progressive, not like the political agenda that's trying to dismantle our country right now, but progressive in the sense that it's steps forward. You don't become a Christian and then pray some kind of magical prayer and suddenly you are completely sanctified, holy, and Christ-like. That does not happen at all. It's steps forward. Now, that could be really encouraging to you if you look at your life and you think, man, I haven't made a whole lot of progress. Well, there's still plenty of time. You can take those steps to become more like Christ. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 4, 17. This is on page 978 if you're looking in a pew Bible. 
Bless you, Junie. Ephesians 4.17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. There's a lot in there. So let's look at the details of what we got here. First, we see that Paul pulls rank on us. All right? He claims that he's saying these things in the Lord or with the authority of the Lord. Now, you and I don't get to do that unless we're simply reading the Word of God, then we're reading the Word of God, and it's authoritative. But Paul here is being used to actually write the Word of God for us, and the Holy Spirit is inspiring him, and the things that he is writing are authoritative for us. Notice in that authority He doesn't word this as a suggestion or a gentle nudge in a certain direction. This is a command. He says, we must not do something. Before we even talk about what that is, some of us feel in our hearts already a nudge towards rebelling. Anytime somebody tells us, you must not do this, or you must do this, something rises up inside of us. I'll show you. You tell me not to do that, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Right? That, is, that is deep inside of us. And if we come to the Word of God that way, we're really just shooting ourselves in the foot. So what is it that we must not do? He says we must not walk as the Gentiles. Now, that's talking, not talking about how they physically walk. Do they strut? Do they shuffle? Do they drag their heels? That doesn't matter at all. When he's talking about walking, he's talking about the way that we live our lives. You must not live your life the way that the Gentiles do. And and what he's doing there is he's spreading the net really wide. He's talking about Gentiles as non-Jewish people who are also outside of Christ. They're not Christians. He's not talking about Christian Gentiles. He's talking about the majority of the population of the world. He's saying, don't live like the world. Don't look like the world. Don't value things like the world. Don't Worship like the world. Don't live like the world. These Gentiles that he's talking about, they are described as though their minds are useless. He talks about the futility of their minds. Now, that doesn't mean that their their brains don't work at all. They could be really smart. They could be the smartest folks in town. They could be coming up with all kinds of great ideas and solving all kinds of problems. But the, the one main thing, the most important thing... They're missing. And so all of that thinking, all of that building, all of that inventing, all of that figuring things out, if you put it in context with eternal things that matter, then their thinking is futile. You could have four, five, six advanced degrees. You could be the smartest person in town, and that is worthless in an eternal perspective if you miss the one most important thing. The folks that he's talking about here are following after all kinds of false gods, and they're missing the one true God. What might that look like for us today in society? Well, many of us make a God out of success. We're consumed with, driven by a desire to succeed in business, school, sports, whatever it is. Now, success is a good thing, but we make it into an idol. We make it into a God. It consumes us We sacrifice our families or we sacrifice our spiritual life 
or the good of our church for success in these other things. It's common today. Wealth is an obvious God in our culture. We have more money and stuff and free time than any other culture in the history of the world, and yet we need more, more, more. We want more all the time. Pleasure, popularity, sex, we are consumed by these things. And when we are consumed by them, we miss God. We can't be fixated on these and be in tune with God. Now, the Bible tells us that all of these idols, for that's what they are, are deceiving us. It was right there in those verses that we read. We value them, we sacrifice to them, we sacrifice for them. In a sense, we are worshiping them, but we were designed to worship God alone. He is the only one worthy of our worship. And when we direct our worship, or we could think worship, the thing that we think is most worthy, when we say that these things are worthy of our time, our money, our attention, whatever it is, more worthy than, than God, that thinking is futile. It gets us nowhere. It gets us nothing other than harm. It doesn't accomplish what we want it to accomplish because we hope these other things, whatever they are for you, will make us happy and fulfilled and instead they leave us empty. Our quest, like our thinking, is futile. What else do we see in these first verses? The futile thinking is coupled with the idea of these people being outside of Christ and they're darkened in their understanding. So it's, it's almost like if you're outside of Christ, even if you're incredibly smart and perceptive and, and all this, you've got these blinders on, you've got these really dark sunglasses, or if you've ever welded, you know how dark a welding shield is? It's like you're wearing one of those all the time. So you're not perceiving reality correctly. Everything is darkened. Everything is distorted. You're not seeing the world for what it is. That's what Paul is talking about here when he says they're darkened in their understanding. Verse 18 gives us then a progression, but it's kind of in a reverse order. He says this, talking again about these folks that we are not to be like, alienated from the life of God because the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So if we reverse this, we get the cause and the cause and the effect. So it starts with our hearts. It's the core of who we are. It's not the pump inside of us. It's, it's who you are, your deepest part of you. That's the idea of the heart. And it says, hard hearts produce something. Produce ignorance. It's kind of weird for us to think about. How, how could that possibly work? I mean, our minds are different than our hearts. But what Paul is getting at here is that your heart, if it is hard, produces in you ignorance about the most important things. We don't usually think that way. Think about the, the modern framework of education in our country. Much of what is currently happening in education today doesn't fit in with this idea at all. We think that if we can get enough information into our kids and we can divorce that information from any kind of morality, certainly divorce it from the idea of God or accountability to God, then maybe our kids will turn out okay. We're ignoring the heart in that. Or even worse, in some situations, 
there are schools and teachers and administrators and curriculums that are actually hardening the hearts of the children that they're teaching and leading. It, it's amazing to me. I, I think about what's going on in some other states and particularly in some, some large cities, how the school system is being used to harden children's hearts. And that's not an indictment about any particular people. It is a great system. It's a big thing. We see the fruit of this as young adults today. Many of them, their hearts are hardened. They have been embittered against their parents, against our nation, against our God. And it leads to, in these words, an ignorance. And that ignorance of the most important things leads to alienation from the life of God. So if your heart is hard, it affects your mind and your thinking, and it leads you to be alienated from God. If that progression is true, then we should be crying out, Lord, save me from a hard heart. Show me where my heart is hard. Break it, soften it, change it. Because I can't see it in me. I am deceived. He goes on in verse 19. He says, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Any of you have any calluses? I've got some calluses on just my left fingers, not my thumb, not my right hand. It's from playing guitar. If you've ever played guitar, tried to learn to play guitar, you know that those first few days and weeks can be very painful. Because you've got to push really hard to get those strings to sound right. And so that first day after you practice for a half hour, you look at your fingers and there are these deep grooves in the ends of your fingers. But if you keep playing and you keep playing, you keep playing, you get calluses on the end. And eventually the grooves no longer form there because the fingers are hard. And you don't have to even work so hard to push the strings down because the ends are hard and it all just works better. Maybe you've got calluses on your feet, on your toes. Maybe you lift weights or you do a job with lots of handling of things, you got calluses on different parts of your hands. Maybe you're a farmer and like your whole body's a callus because you're just always working in all kinds of ways. How do we get calluses? We get calluses when our skin is repeatedly rubbing up against something that is rough or irritating or challenging to it. So it makes a callus. So Paul's talking about Spiritual calluses here. How would we get spiritual calluses? Well, we get spiritual calluses in the same way. Our soul, our spirits, they rub up against something rough and irritating. They rub up against our sin. And it makes us hard and calloused. This is either currently true of all of us in this room, or at least at one point true of all of us in this room, where we have developed a sinful habit, It's just kind of become natural, automatic, second nature to us. And in the beginning, we felt some guilt and shame about it. And we thought, well, I really shouldn't be doing this. And God, please help me to get out of this. But now it's just become part of us. And we don't feel that guilt or shame anymore. We don't even think about it because we have grown callous as that sin rubs up against us over and over again. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about our hearts, our, uh, our consciences, being seared 
They don't longer work because they've been burnt. Verse 19 again. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is similar to the first chapter of the book of Romans. So if you're taking notes this morning, right, Romans 1, and I encourage you to, to read through Romans 1 this week and understand it and see how it connects with these few short verses here. In Romans 1, Paul, same guy, is writing about an ancient culture, the seedbed of all of our humanity, that was just consumed with sinfulness, and God gave them over to their evil desires, and they just multiplied their sin on top of their sin. That's what he's talking about in Romans there. And in Ephesians here, though, he's talking about this word sensuality, it's the idea of sexual sin, of lust, fornication, indecency, lustful passion, all these things. And he pairs that with these words, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, I believe Paul means to link those two things together. He's not just saying all impurity in general. He's focusing in on this idea of sensual impurity. And this describes much of our culture today very well. The world is greedy eager, desperate to practice every kind of impurity. They long for more, they want more, and will even invent more. Today we are inventing ways to be impure, specifically sexually sinful. This got started in earnest in the 1960s with the sexual revolution contributed to the idea of the new no-fault divorce laws in the 1970s. In 1974, Roe versus Wade brought uh, a freedom of consequence to much sexual activity by opening up the idea of abortion. This accelerated through the great gay pride movement and has morphed into the LGBTQ plus movement today. Have you noticed that our culture today seems to be more obsessed with sexual impurity than at any other point in the past that you can remember. We are celebrating it in so many ways. New twisted forms of sensuality are even being invented. Now, older folks in the room, you might look at what's happening in the country and you shake our heads and you think, what in the world is going on? In a sense, that's always the case. The older generations look at the younger generations and they shake their heads. But we are living through a fundamental change in society right now. We're living through a redefinition of what it means to be a human. And this is on purpose. Those who are the architects of this cultural revolution are seeking the damage of our younger children, teens, and young adults. Particularly in the way that they view what it means to be a man or a woman. Sobering statistic for you especially if you're kind of detached from the younger generation. If you take Generation Z, 20% of those Generation Z students, young adults, voluntarily describe themselves as homosexual, bisexual, transgendered, or some other form of new gender identity. One in five of Generation Z. That is unprecedented in any culture, at any point in history. And unless that's reversed, it means the death of Western culture, even if it's just 
through a lack of having babies. This is a huge, huge change. In Romans 1, like I mentioned before, God's talking about this kind of thing, but not specifically the same way. And in Romans 1, 28 through 32, he says this. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, or they would not submit to him as God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. It's quite the list. The list goes on, though. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is quite the list. You see yourself anywhere in that list. But for the grace of God... All of us belong in that list. Now, there's a whole lot more that could be in that list, but Paul picks certain things, and I have to wonder, why did you pick those things exactly, Paul? Because he puts gossip in with the same list as murder. Does God really take it that seriously? He puts disobedience to parents in there with murder. That should be a wake-up call for us. Parents and kids. We'll talk about the parent and child relationship a lot more a few weeks from now. I went to this passage in Romans, though, for one particular phrase. In verse 30, it says, They are inventors of evil. You should think about that label. Not content with all of the evil that is available, all the ideas that have already been thought up, but that we're going to invent new ways of being and doing evil. We delight in it so much. We are eager to make new evil. See how this fits with the Ephesians passage that we just read and how it describes our world today, particularly with the idea of the sexual revolution today. If you ask some of the experts, today they'll tell you there are at least 80 different genders for humanity. That number probably went up just since I started talking this morning. We are inventors of evil. And it's harming our children. Not only, not only is this evil being perpetrated, in the words of Romans here, it's being uh, approved of. And then I would say it's going past that even. It's, it's being celebrated. And in some situations, it's being cultivated. Children are being recruited for this kind of evil. God has very strong words for that kind of situation. So quickly at verse 32 in Romans 1 before we go back to Ephesians. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, again, that is true of all of us apart from the grace of God. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice these things. May that not be true of us. I know it's heavy and dark, but like many passages in Scripture, the bad news comes and then the good news comes after it. And there's a dividing line. And just like in many of those great passages, the dividing line is the word but. So if we go back to Ephesians 4, verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. 
He describes all that darkness, all that awfulness. He says, no, that is not how you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Christ. So if you have been saved by Jesus, you heard the gospel and you responded with repentance and faith, you learned of Christ, you said, that sounds true and that sounds like a great deal. I'm going to receive this gift of salvation through Christ It's not my own work, it's his work only, his work on the cross, and I'm going to receive that as a free gift. You did that by learning the truth of who Christ is and what he has done for you. Notice Paul talks here about learning, about knowing the truth. He doesn't talk about feeling the truth, he doesn't talk about experiencing the truth. He talks about knowing the truth, learning the truth. You do not become a Christian through feelings, emotions, or even a great experience. Maybe as a kid you had like this amazing experience at camp. That experience does not make you a Christian. Maybe you were in a worship service that it just felt amazing and like the Spirit of God was moving and everybody's pouring their hearts out to God. That emotion, that experience does not make you a Christian. Knowing the gospel hearing the gospel, and responding with repentance and faith, that makes you Christian. Just like being born into a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. You don't become a Christian by osmosis, by hanging around people at church or having Christian parents. You learn the truth of Christ and what he did, and you respond with repentance and faith. All right, let's go to verse 22. He's going to give us the start of the solution here. We're going to finish the solution next week, and then Russell's going to add some extra stuff onto it the week after that. Verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we got three acts to this little play here. You put off this, you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You put on this other stuff. This is the important concept of put off, put on. We see this at multiple places in the New Testament. We're going to look at this in detail next week. You've heard me talk about this, but it's good for us to be reminded of this because this is how we grow in our sanctification. This is how we progress towards Christ-likeness and holiness. We put off the old. We put on the new. Look at how the old self. It's true of all of us. This is how the old self is described. It is corrupt through deceitful desires. That's true of you and I before Christ saved us. We are corrupt through deceitful desires. Our memory passage talked about such desires. Caleb, if we go to the slide and we look at verse 3 of Ephesians 2, it says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Are those good desires? In this context, absolutely not. They are linked with being children of wrath. Now, you can have good desires and you can have bad desires. You can have godly desires, you can have godless desires. This is talking about the bad, the godless desires. And Paul tells us that these are deceitful They are tricky. Have you ever been deceived by a desire? I need this. I 
want this. I have to have this today. I'm not going to make it through the afternoon unless I have this. I desire this. And then you find out afterwards, like, it wasn't all it was cracked up to be, and actually it made things really bad for me. That's the deceitfulness of desire. Let's go back to 22. So put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Desires, that he's talking about here, are at war with the Spirit of God in us. They're trying to trick us and turn us away from God. These desires demand that we feed them, that we fulfill them, that we bow down to them. Again, go back to this idea of the, the transgender movement of today. Millions of Americans are deceived by their desires, their emotions. They feel like, and this, this is genuine, like they honestly feel, they feel like they're in the wrong body. And yet those feelings are deceitful, deceptive. God made them, male or female, we see that right from the beginning, Genesis 1.27, God made them in his image, male or female, creates the first man, he creates the first woman, two very distinct genders, brings them together in the first marriage, and for the first time God says, it is very good. That's from the beginning. But many of our culture are rejecting that created order. Because it doesn't feel like reality to them. They are deceived by their desires. And it should break our hearts as we think about that. Now, it's different for each of us. We have different desires. They deceive us in different ways. What are the things that tend to deceive you? What are the things that you thought you couldn't live without, that you needed, that you had to have today? Well, maybe... Maybe it's big relational things, like you, you desired a more fulfilling sex life or home life, and so you were deceived into trying to get that by cheating on your spouse or divorcing your spouse. Or maybe you desired to be liked by people, and that tricked you into reshaping who you are, how you talk, or how you behave in order to fit in with a certain group. That's not just for middle school and high school. Us adults are very susceptible to that deception. Have you been tricked by a desire to be thought highly of and respected and so you would work really hard to impress others, maybe neglecting your family and ignoring or even disobeying your Lord in order to get that? Our desires can deceive us. Let's look at that last verse, 24. To put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So it's not just enough to get rid of the old and leave a vacuum. We've got to fill that vacuum with the new. We're talking about putting off and putting on. You take off the garment of the old, you set it down, you take on the new garment, you put it on. You must replace it with the new self. That new self is referred to here as being created in the likeness of God. So just as the first humans were created in the image of God, and every human since then is created in the image of God, when you are saved, you are recreated in the image of God. Your new self 
is created in the image of God. Now, it uses two words here to describe it, righteousness and holiness. For the sake of time, we're going to push those to next week. But I want to look at what's sandwiched in between the put off and the put on this passage. In between there, we have the idea of the renewal of the mind. Probably every one of us in this room have memories, thoughts of things that haunt us. And sometimes those things are used to attack us. We hear these accusations in our minds. Look what you did. Look how you behaved. Look how even this morning, the way that you thought or your motivations of your heart, you claim to be in Christ, but look at what you have done. You are lost. You are worthless. Our minds need to be renewed. God's not going to wipe away all of our memories. He doesn't do that. But he does redeem our memories. Those things that you feel the most shame and guilt for in your life. God can redeem those. He can renew your mind in those areas so that they no longer haunt you. They no longer accuse you. Instead, they serve as reminders of the grace and mercy of God that transforms you. So I want you to see how this is worded. So we're told to put off the old, we're told to put on the new, and right in the middle it says, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. It does not say, put off, renew your mind, put on. Put off, be renewed. We do not renew our minds. We are the recipients of renewed minds. This is parallel to the whole gospel message itself. God is the one who renews our minds. That is really good news because if you have ever tried to wipe out those past memories and think only in good ways moving forward, you know how impossible that is. It must be done supernaturally on our behalf. And the way that the Spirit inspires Paul to write these words, even the grammar is good news. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. There's a parallel passage in Romans 12 too, where Paul says this. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and perfect. And so in those in that passage there again it's the idea of being transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's something acting on you. Yes, we cooperate with God, but he is the actor. We do not transform ourselves. He transforms us. We'll look next week in detail about this idea of putting off and putting on. We'll read the rest of our little section here in Ephesians 4. And if you want to get you know, some extra credit, you can read Colossians chapter 3. And that'll get into the put off, put on for next week, help you understand that. But for now, as we trans, uh, transition into communion, I want to remind you of what I just said. Communion is a remembrance of what Christ did for us. We are tempted, we are deceived into trying to remember the ways that we have failed, we have turned our back on Christ, we have harmed others, all those things in our past that we're guilty of and ashamed of. We 
We're tempted to remember those things. But if, if God renews our minds and redeems us from those things, we are free to instead be remembering the work of Christ on our